We are going through the book of Matthew, and we are actually going to be finishing it soon. We've been going through it. Uh, I saw on the, uh, the podcast list that last week was Sermon 77 in the book of Matthew, and so this is Sermon 78, so that gives us an idea of what we've been doing here as we've been kind of slowly plodding through the book of Matthew, taking short breaks for a little bit and then coming back. But today is no different. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, look underneath you there. There's one of those, and you can just grab that and take that. It's free for you. Uh, Keep it. If you already have one and you know somebody that needs one, take that and go give it to them. We've got... uh, a bunch of them, and we get them really, really cheap for that purpose, is to be able, for you to be able to hand them out. So go ahead and take that um, and give it away. <clears throat> now, as I said, we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start at verse 17 today, and we'll be going through chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 29. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in today uh, at Matthew 26. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us, and it's infallible and inerrant. And because of that, uh, as, a, as a preacher, it's <laughs> a good place to be and a nice place to rest, that I don't have to be um, really um, too persuasive or too analytical or too creative. But God, I can just, by the power of the Spirit, beg your presence in my life try to teach the word faithfully and just trust that your word will do what it promises. Go forth, um, lead us into conviction and lead us into righteousness and show us what it is that you have done for us in the good news of Jesus on the cross. And so I pray to that end this morning that you would come and you would do that. We love you, Lord, and, and ask for you to come now and move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last week, we started this new series um, going from Matthew 26 to 28. This is a new section. Uh, Chapters 24 and 25 kind of stood as their own and where Jesus was doing a large sermon teaching on the end times. And 26 is a whole new section. And you can see like the shift in chapter 26 right there in verses 1 and 2. We had it on the screen. It said, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples. So he had just got through talking about what's known as the eschaton, the the big time period of of end times. He had just got through doing a huge teaching on what it's going to look like. And this little verse right there in verse 1 in chapter 26, Matthew is wanting us to see, okay, this is the turn. This is the shift, and this is the the moment where he is going to start walking towards the cross. Uh, It's about Tuesday, and we know that he's going to be crucified on Thursday, right there in verse 1. And he looks at him, and he says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. This was a meal that they all celebrated together, a, a historical thing that was celebrated right there in the city of Jerusalem. And he says that you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So he, he again prophesies that God is sovereign over, over the Son of Man's death, Jesus' death. He has decided it's going to happen in two days. Uh, and then we looked at that first section uh, <clears throat> starting at verse 1 through 16, and we see kind of on, on both sides... In verses 1 through 5, you have the plotters plotting. And on 14 through 16, you have Judas doing what he's going to do. But put right there in the middle, kind of lifted up as an example for us to prepare for the king's death, is this story where Matthew kind of does a little flashback and gives us the story of the woman who anointed Jesus and how she actually did prepare for the king's death in the most appropriate way, um, honoring him and worshiping him. 
And so now we're going into verse 17, starting where he's actually going to start the Passover. And I said this last week, but just as a, as a, a way to remind us all, uh, what's going on here in chapters 26, 27, and into, into 28, but mostly 26 and 27, is the passion narrative. This is the death of Jesus. There are not very many bright spots. As a matter of fact, uh, today would be the last glad moment we're going to look at today, really the last glad moment that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And the rest of the time is just dark, sorrowful narrative. And so I, I said last week, as we're looking at the passion narrative, the outlines that you're going to normally see me, me, me doing here are going to be more historical-based than didactic. In other words, I'm going to, as we're looking at this passion narrative, give you an outline about what's happening, not give you an outline about, look at what's, what, what the writer's saying, this is what you ought to do. So while we look at epistles and we look at letters like Romans or etc., if we looked at that, the outlines would naturally fall in more of a teaching didactic. This is what you should do. This is how you should think. This is how you should react. This is more passion narrative. So it's just going to tell us what's happening. But what I'm trying to do um, as we look at these outlines of this is what happens, I'm trying to work in didactic and teaching in it as well because this isn't a seminary class, right? This is preaching. So I want to preach for faith. That's the goal of all preaching is that you who are Christians would trust and believe in Jesus more and what he's done and you who are not Christians would trust and believe in Jesus of what he's done for you and become a Christian. So uh, we're looking at two sections today and I've entitled this, these two sections, 17 through 29, the two meals of our Lord. Because um, very much so what Matthew is wanting us to see as Jesus is uh, going to practice or, or celebrate, I should say, the Passover with his disciples, he also right afterwards has the Lord's Supper. And he intentionally, Matthew and Jesus, are wanting us both to see the similarities and the differences between what would be the Passover, the old historical meal that was celebrated for years and years as they celebrated what God did whenever the Israelites were ushered out of the Exodus, out of Egypt, and brought into the Promised Land. And this new meal, very new, without a doubt, there's no question as you get to verse 26 and it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. This was a brand new thing. This was not part of the Passover. Jesus starts something new, and so they're juxtapositioned together in this particular text, very intentionally, so that we can see the Passover and now also the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so because of that, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I I told everybody today that this is the longest preparation talk sermon leading up to the Lord's Supper in Remedy Church history. It's a whole 50-minute sermon that just brings us right to the Lord's Supper. Normally, I kind of talk for a while after I preach, and we have a 20-minute time anyway. Don't have to do that today. All I got to do is when we get the Lord's Supper, say, based on everything we just said, let's take the Lord's Supper. So that ought to be good at the end. Anyway, uh, back here, I've entitled this The Two Meals of Our Lord. And so as we're looking at the two meals of our Lord, obviously you can guess verse 17 through 25 will be the first section, 26 through 29 will be the second. So uh, we can go ahead and put up number one, the, the two meals of our Lord. The first one is, I've, uh, the first point is in verses 17 through 25. It's the shadow and the question of the hour. And those are two separate ideas, but the shadow and the question of the hour. And what I mean by the shadow is, if I'm standing here and I'm looking at my shadow, uh, if all I've ever seen is the shadow, and that's all I've ever known is the shadow, I can think that that's real. But actually, that shadow is not real. What's real is me, and that's just showing me. And so what we're looking at here is when we talk about the shadow is the Passover is just a shadow of the thing to come. Of course, it was real, but it's illustrating or pushing us or helping 
helping us see the real thing that's going to happen. So as we look at this, when we say the shadow, you can know that I'm talking about the Passover when we're talking about the shadow. And then the question of the hour, and that, that's going to unfold as we look at the narrative there in verses 17 through 25. So let's look at it uh, in verse 17. This is actually the next day. So we've now officially moved into Wednesday, and we know that Thursday is the night that Jesus is going to be uh, crucified. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, there were some specific, the reason why they're asking for us to prepare is because the Passover was not just kind of small little deal. It was actually a pretty big deal uh, and very expansive in what needed to be done to prepare for it. Let me give you some guidelines here of what's going on. Uh, This is how the Passover meal was to be uh, done and celebrated. Each household, and this was all over, everybody would celebrate it. They would all come to Jerusalem and have it. And this is kind of the way the night would look if someone was going to celebrate the Passover. Each household would have a lamb brought to the temple court where the priest would sacrifice the lamb. And then D.A. Carson says after that, the priest took the blood and passed it in the basins along the line till it was poured out at the foot of the altar. And so this one lamb was killed and slain and its blood was poured out. Then back at the house, um, after that, each household would gather. And at sunset, as soon as the sun would go down, the house would gather together in a home and eat the, the Passover lamb. And it would be roasted with bitter herbs. And then the next thing that it would do is the head of the household would begin the meal with prayer. And as he was praying, he would thank God for the feast day that they were having. And then he would also thank God for the first of four cups that they would take. Each cup was with wine. Um, the, next one, the next thing that would happen is that the father would then explain everything that they were doing in, in the Passover in terms of the Exodus. Meaning uh, in the book of Exodus where the, the Israelites were slaves and they finally, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Who? No, no, no. Whenever they finally got out, whenever they finally got to leave, they understood that God was the one that delivered them from Exodus, from the Exodus and the exile and brought them into the promised land. And so they were celebrating that Passover because that night before that they were supposed to leave, as long as you put blood on your doorstep, then you knew that you were safe. The, the angel would pass over your particular household and the firstborn wouldn't be, wouldn't be, wouldn't be killed. And so they're celebrating this idea of the Passover. And so the, the father would explain everything in the terms of the Exodus. And then the second cup of wine was introduced into the main course. And then after that, the third cup was also known. This cu- third cup was known as the cup of blessing, followed by a prayer of thanksgiving. And then they sang what's known as the Hallel, which would be a psalm. Likely uh, in 114, 115, 116. It's just off the top of my head. I can't remember. Um, then after that, uh, a fourth cup was offered. So there was lots of preparations. And so whenever you see the disciples come and say, Jesus, um, where will you have us prepare for you at the Passover? It was a big deal. It was a, it was a lot that had to go into it. And so Jesus gives an answer. He says uh, in verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Uh, as we look at that, that says my time is at hand, we naturally on this side of the cross, looking back, think, oh, Matthew 26 two, right? We think, you know that in two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will, will be delivered up to be crucified. Even though Jesus prophesied that just a day before to his disciples, they're still not feeling and, and understanding the full weight and the gravity of everything because it hasn't happened. And certainly they think, you're our king. We follow you. We think you're Jesus. We think you're the Son of Man. We think you're the Messiah. And you're not going to die. That, that doesn't make sense to us. You're going to rule and reign and set up shop and be the king. 
And so they're certainly still not thinking about this. And we know that just previously when, when we're looking at the end times, it's like, which one of these buildings are you going to be king in? You know, so we, we know that they're thinking that. Uh, but back over here, when we see my time is at the hand, they're probably thinking his time's at hand to celebrate the Passover, uh, not actually be the Passover lamb. And so he says, when should, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, I I didn't want to, as we get to verse 19, make this application because I thought it was kind of stretching. But every commentator made it. And so I'm just going to do it anyway. And I think it's just a simple little side note application that you can make there with verse 19. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And Jesus directs us. And we should just have this simple mindset of obedience whenever Jesus tells us to do something because Jesus told us to do it, not whoever, we should just go do it. Now, I I was thinking, that's just too easy. I I shouldn't do that. But every commentator stretched themselves to say, and even Spurgeon said something like, the disciples went into the house and and went to and met people and did what the Lord wanted them and certainly had some kind of uh, interchange with this particular person and, and who knows what could have even happened with that. And so as you go and, and have these exchanges, these, these conversations with people, you have no idea. He like stretched it even further. But still, I thought it was good. But at the same time, um, it's, it's a good application to say. Like they just, they didn't understand fully. You want me to go talk to some random man that's just waiting for you. If you read the rest of the other, the parallel texts in Mark and Luke, it's just literally like go to so-and-so unknown man and tell him that, our Lord says, hey, I need for you to just give me this upper room. And he's just going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus needs that upper room. No problem. And they've been with Jesus. And they know Jesus didn't, like, sneak away and shoot a text over that guy and said, hey, I need for you to hook me up with that room. They're just thinking, um, who's this guy and how do you know him? And lo and behold, they get there. And he's like, yeah, the upper room, yeah, it's for you. It's right over here. So set it up. Go ahead and get it going. And so they just obey. They just obey. Based on who he is, they just obey, which is obviously what we should do. Um, So we go into the next phase of the day now. We've moved into evening, and as we said, once sunset happens, once it's evening, then they start the Passover in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. We've talked about this before in some settings, but remove the, uh, the painting of them all sitting at the table, kind of looking under there and Jesus in the middle. It was really more different. They kind of were very close to the floor and they reclined in a, a circle more likely and they would put their feet behind them and they would just, it's probably the most awkward way to eat, but that's how they kind of, they all sat around and they ate together. And as I said, we are entering into what would be the last kind of happy spot in Matthew 26 and 27 as Jesus shares with his disciples. The rest of it's just Gethsemane, betrayal, being beaten before Pilate. The rest of it's just very sorrowful text. Um, So it went into evening, and he's reclining with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, now this just floors them. He says, one of you, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Spurgeon says, that short sentence fell like a bombshell among the Savior's bodyguard. I mean, you can just imagine. They're all eating. Everything's got to be fine. In their heads, this is great. We're taking the Passover together. And all of a sudden, as they're rejoicing and eating, everything's great. Jesus looks out at the 12, the closest people to him, and says, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, that's just a bombshell falling. All of their hearts, you can just imagine, all of their hearts just have to sink and think, what is he saying? What's going on? And you can see that in verse 22. They were very sorrowful. 
These men felt great love for Jesus, and it hit them hard. This news produced what, um, what could only be described as deep, deep emotions and sorrow and sadness. Hit their hearts. Who out of this close-knit family is going to do that? that, that we can't imagine that. And it says, and they began to say one after another. So this means in some kind of sequential kind of order where they're all asking, is it me? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And they could just kind of go down the line. Is it I, Lord? Um, one after another, they're responding uniformly, wondering if it's them. And, and we see that the 12 all go in order. And then we actually see that in verse 25, Judas goes last. So 1, 2, 3, 7, 11, and all of a sudden Judas is just there. And we know the story because Matthew's already told us in 14 through 16 that Judas is the one that already did it for 30 pieces of silver. And so we know that it, was, that it was Judas. And so at the very end, we know that Judas even says, is it I too? You know, he doesn't want them to wonder if it's him. But Spurgeon notices something golden in this little section where he says, it's a beautiful trait in the character of the disciples. Having been with Jesus for three years, having spent so much time with Jesus that they were becoming like Christ so much, he says that they did not suspect one another, but every one of them inquired most, almost incredulously as the foreman question, is it I, Lord? Just, just think about that. The more you're with Christ, the more you're with him, the more you become more self-introspective, more self-reflective rather than deflective and, and defensive. Oh, it must be you. We realize, along with Paul, 1 Peter 1.15, chief of all sinners right here. Chief of all sinners. And so they all, as, as they're with Christ, say, well, is it me? So I thought that was just a golden thing that Spurgeon points out. And what we see here is that I, Lord, is that I, Lord, Lord, kurios is the Greek word behind that. The sovereign over all, the one who is in charge of everything. Is it I, Lord, 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 they all call him that. Is it you, is, is it I, Lord, is it the one that has done it? And so he answers them. He tells them, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. So they're all eating there, and so um, they didn't have forks, and I don't think they had chopsticks. Their utensil was a piece of bread, right? It was a piece of bread. And so what they do, the way they ate is you had a, a common bowl, and they would take their bread, unleavened, no doubt, unleavened, and they would stick it in there, and they would eat, and that would kind of be their thing. That's the way they ate. And so he says, the one that is going to betray me is sharing a meal here with me right now. The ESV Study Bible points something out that's quite interesting. He says, the ESV study Bible says, the height of disloyalty and betrayal is sharing a meal with a friend before turning on him. And so this is the height of betrayal. It's just, it's not some guy that just pointed you out. Like, he's pretending all the way to the end to be your friend. The height, the height of disloyalty and betrayal. And Jesus points that out by saying, the one that's eating with me, sharing a meal with me, something that's very intimate in this setting, in this particular culture, is the one that's going to do it. And then in verse 24, verse 24 is jam-packed full with power. He calls himself the son of man again. Uh, again, there's a big, huge title with that. It's not just some kind of random title he gives himself. There's a lot jam-packed. And he says in verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. There could, if, if all the verses we're studying today, I mean, packed into verse 24 
is just tons of theology to try to unpack. I'm not going to do a lot of it, but I'm going to look at some things for us. I think that it's helpful for us um, to understand some theological things that he's saying here. D.A. Carson says that when he calls himself the Son of Man, here the Son of Man is simultaneously the glorious messianic figure who receives the kingdom. So he's the powerful kingdom king, reigner, but he's also, as we look at Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. He's the son of man. All of that put together, the servant and the king being shown to us. Also, when he says, it would have been better for that man to not have been been born. So we're looking at this idea. Judas, because he's going to disobey, because he's going to betray Jesus, is not off the hook when it comes to, I mean, this is the, the, the big overarching plan That God sovereignly says, as he says in verse 2, God is the one who decides whenever Jesus is going to die. And so this this unfolding plan is going to happen. There's no question about it. But then we have Judas, a key piece in God's unfolding plan happening, the betrayer. And so you ask yourself, well, if the betrayer didn't happen, would God's plan still unfold the right way? No. And so God has sovereignly decided how each piece is going to play out. And so we all ask ourselves then, well, then is Judas, you know, held as responsible morally for this choice? That doesn't seem right. Let's, let's look at all this. Judas is not off the hook here for disobedience. Though, yes, as the plan unfolds and the betrayal plays a key part in Jesus being arrested and later crucified for our sin, Judas's choice was still a real moral choice that he made. And this is where divine sovereignty and human responsibility bump together, and we say in that middle spot, all I can say is mystery. I don't understand it completely, but I know that God is completely sovereign, and man is completely responsible, and the Bible is not painting any other picture than that right here. Judas is completely held morally responsible for what he's done here, though he is, without a doubt, a key player. We know that um, it was better for him not to have been born. It says it, and actually in Acts one twenty five that Jesus went into his own, Judas. I'm sorry, went into his own place. So we know that there's a special place reserved for Judas, um, according to Acts one twenty five. What all the details of that mean, you know, we can we can only surmise what it means. But D. A. Carson, looking at this this mystery of the divine sovereignty and the human responsibility bumping in together where we hit that mystery spot. This is what he says. The divine necessity for the sacrifice of the Son of Man does not excuse or mitigate the crime or lessen the crime of betrayal. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both involved in Judas's treason. The one affecting salvation, divine sovereignty, and bringing redemption and history to its fulfillment. The other, human responsibility, Uh, answering the promptings of an evil heart. The one results in salvation from sin of Messiah. The one results in salvation from sin for Messiah's people, which has been prophesied from the very beginning. Matthew 121, right as we're looking at the very beginning of the story, uh, as we're hearing about Joseph and Mary, it says right there in 121, this man will be the one who saves his people from his sins. And we're seeing it again, even brought to us kind of as another, what they call inclusio, a bookend, right? From Matthew one twenty one all the way to Matthew 26. Bookends of Jesus being the one who's going to die for the sins of his people. And we see it again here where he is dying for the sins of his people. But Judas is not off, off the hook. The other, a personal and eternal ruin. So very much so an idea in Genesis 50.20 where Joseph, um, that 
crazy story happens to Joseph. He finds himself finally, and he looks at his brothers, and he's looking at his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Judas meant for evil, God turned in his divine sovereignty and meant it for good, namely the salvation of his people. So Judas is not off the hook here. J.C. Ryle, this is just a, a good side note for us to consider in verse 25. It said, it would have been better for him not to be born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? J.C. Ryle says, Judas Iscariot had the highest possible religious privileges. He was a chosen apostle and companion of Christ. He was an eyewitness of our Lord's miracles and a hearer of his sermons. He lived in the society of 11 apostles. He was a fellow laborer with Peter, James, and John. Not one of the 11 seems to have been suspected him of hypocrisy. When our Lord said, one of you shall betray me, no one said, is it Judas? Yet, This time, his heart was showing that he was the betrayer. So, I mean, this is just a good caution for us. A very good caution for us. This man, out of anybody else, spent time with the only perfect man ever and missed it. We never will have that opportunity. So we should not just think that cultural Christianity is going to be the salvation of our soul. Let's notice one thing here. When I say uh, the very p- first point is the shadow and the f- question of the hour, we've talked about the Passover, but let's talk about the question of the hour. Let's not miss what Matthew's really wanting us to see. Verse 22, verse 22, all the disciples are feeling sorrowful. They all begin to say one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Curios? Is it me, sovereign ruler and reigner? 25. What does Judas say? Not Lord. Is it I, Rabbi? Respected teacher. Is it I? Not Lord. Is it I, teacher? Jesus looks at him and says, you have said so. Colloquially for us in English, that would, that would be like, you said it, not me. So, Clearly, Judas understands that he's talking about him. There's enough ambiguity in the room that maybe the disciples don't get it. But Judas understands what Jesus is saying. The question of the hour then is this. We're left with just one question. Is Jesus for us in this cultural milieu of southern Christianity? Is it, here's the question. Is Jesus for us as we live out our lives? And we would me- never say this with our mouths. We would never just declare this. But with the way we live our lives, is this what our actions reflect? Is Jesus for us a mere rabbi? We're respectful of him. We we believe he's a good teacher. Or is he our Lord? And I know with your mouth what you'll say. But reflect on your heart and your actions. Do you come in here week in, week, week out, ready just to hear teachings, find out a mental, intellectual exercise that could be fun to understand some more stuff because he's our rabbi with no real intention of actually carrying out the required obedience to what you hear? Then go out to your busyness lives and just compartmentalizing Jesus into your already nice, busy life and happy life. Is he just your rabbi? 
Is Jesus just a nice addition to your already happy life? Do you just enjoy teachings? Is he just merely something that you are respectful to, but you're not willing to give everything to? Or is he for your life everything? Is he your Lord? Very simply, is Jesus your Lord? Whenever he says, I want you to do this, because he is your Lord, you're going to do it. Whenever he says, I want you to go here, because he is your Lord, you're going to go there. Whenever he says, I want you to kill this particular sin in your life, are you going to say, yes, I'm going to, because you're my Lord, kill this particular sin in my life. Whenever he says, I want you to reach that person, because he is your Lord, yes, you're going to reach that person. Have we accidentally found ourselves as really in practice Jesus is our rabbi rather than Jesus being our Lord? That's the question of the hour. And let's just admit it. It's really easy to let that happen in this Disneyland, as Piper would call it. It's really easy to do that in America. This is the difference between rabbi and Lord. And what is he in your life? Well, let's keep going. Verse 26, Jesus is going to explain this second meal. And I think that as we understand this second meal, so we're moving into verse 26. I think the best thing for us to do as we look at verse 26, to have that question kind of shoot over our heads as we're reading verses 26 and following, and let that question be answered in light of what we're going to see in verses 26 and following. Because if we understand this, when we look up to that question right there, is he just my rabbi or is he my Lord? As we understand the gospel laid out for us in the table, then I think that we can say, well, I know what the answer should be, and I will resolve this moment today to say, yes, he's going to be my Lord. Not just a guy that stimulates me intellectually and lets me learn deeper things, and hopefully I can sound smarter, or I can just know more Greek words. But instead, that's not what we need. We need to take what we already know, which we know tons of, and start applying those things. The goal or what we need in our life is not information. It's being obedient to the information we already know. We've been here long enough that I think we've talked about almost every concept when it comes to Christianity. I'm not beating us up. I'm just saying, let's resolve. Let's resolve to not be just cultural Christians here in the South. Let's go to this next one, the second meal. And this is the substance and the question of this hour. This is the substance so we've looked at the shadow and the question of the hour, which is Lord or Rabbi. Now we're going to look at the substance and the question of this hour. As they move into um, verse 26, the Lord's Supper, Spurgeon says, the Jewish Passover was made to melt into the Lord's Supper as the stars of the morning dissolve into the light of the sun. The Passover is and has always been a pointer to the Lord's Supper. And so in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. This was new. This was brand new. We just outlined those, those things of what's going to happen inside of a Passover meal. And then all of a sudden, Jesus takes bread and breaks it. That's not in the guidelines. The disciples, no doubt, as Jesus takes bread, this wasn't something like, oh, it's bread time. That's good. It's bread time. They were thinking, 
All of them. You have to just stick yourself in the narrative and realize that what we know about the Passover and we know the guidelines, all of a sudden, Jesus, I mean, the guy that knows everything, the guy that we know wrote the Old Testament is looking at them and all of a sudden says, something new is about to happen. Bread breaking. All of that. All the disciples who have celebrated the Passover year after year together, he gets to this part and all of a sudden they're thinking, that's not ever happened before. What's he going to do? What is this? What's, what's going on here? So Jesus is going to begin to explain what's going to happen the next day. So as it hits, as it begins, they're already thinking, this is new. What's going on? Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And he said, he took bread after blessing it, and he said, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body. Take and eat, this bread represents my body. As the disciples ate of the Passover, which had been celebrated year after year after year, animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice, Jesus is taking bread and ending the Passover, as the once-for-all fulfillment now for all of his people. He's going to explain that later on that night or the next day will be the once-for-all fulfillment. He broke bread and he gave it. He broke it and he gave it. Commentators, as they see in verse 26, he broke it and gave it. Those two little verbs together. Commentators are quick to start pointing out something that we should, as we go through, want to see and understand. His body is broken for us and then given given and distributed freely to all of us who believe and trust as Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Just as with the 12, and we don't have any any evidence. I, I tried to figure it out just as much as I possibly could. I think that Judas had left, but I'm not certain. I'm not certain. Even Judas might be there. And he takes it and distributes it freely to all who would believe. So even this moment right now, if you don't trust Christ, his body was broken for you and has been distributed. The grace of God has been distributed, given freely to you right now. If you would believe, you will be saved forever. Forever. D.A. Carson says, the bread has been broken, so will Jesus' body be broken. And just as the people of Israel associated their deliverance from Egypt with eating the Paschal meal, the Passover meal, as prescribed by divine ordinance, so also Messiah's people are going to associate Jesus' redemptive death with the eating of this bread um, by Jesus' authority. And so we see those, those similar words right there told us in verses 26. He took the bread and he said, this is my body. He's going to do that same setup there in verse 27. And he took a cup. When he given thanks, he gave it to him saying, drink it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This is my bread and it's, it, this, is my bo- this is bread and this is my body. This is the cup and this is my blood. As he looks at it, the blood, or he looks at the cup where there's wine in there. The wine represents... Jesus' blood. I don't have time to run into the theological aspects. All the commentators, if you want to go, I, I can prescribe the different views of what Jesus is saying here. But what I say and what I think um, Jesus, in the right reading of it, is that Jesus is saying, this cup of wine is representational of my blood. It's representational of my blood. 
And as he's pointing at, the wine represents Jesus' blood. And Jesus is pointing to and understands that within 24 hours, there will be a violent, sacrificial death with much bloodshed that he is going to undergo. Very violent. And he says in verse 28, Drink of it, all of you. Again, that same invitation. Broke it and gave it. Same verbal language. Drink of it, all of you. It's made available to you. If you would trust and believe, if you would put your trust in Christ and what he's done on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, he died the death you should have died. Come now and receive salvation forever. Drink of it. Take it. It's, it's out there for you. But this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It's poured out for many. In the Passover, the blood, as we talked about by the priest, was poured out. And Jesus was teaching that his blood was going to be poured out in the next day as a fulfillment of the Passover. We see that in Isaiah 53, um, verse 12. This is uh, one of the allusions to the, uh, the prophecy that was told about Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide... Him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. transgressors. So here we see, as he's saying, he's pouring out. He's, he's providing salvation for those that would trust in him. The ESV study Bible, looking at the cup, says, The cup foreshadows the shedding of Jesus' blood and Namely, don't miss this, the absorbing of God's wrath. So God was angry towards sin, justly angry. It wasn't unjust, it was just anger. And it had to be poured out. And instead of being poured out on you and I, because we are rebels at heart, willingly go and sin. Jesus stepped in front and said, I will take the wrath. And he took all of the wrath. And if we trust that he did that, we'll receive eternal life. And it says, He absorbed God's wrath, which opens the way for redemption now for all the peoples through the new covenant relationship with God that was promised. And you're saying covenant, that's what he says. Drink of the blood of the covenant. Covenant, what covenant? Promise, what promise? What are we talking about? Well, there's a multiplicity of verses we could go to in the Old Testament. But I'm going to pick one, just one. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is... The old covenant and now the new covenant. This is the new covenant told about in the Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling. This is Jeremiah 31, starting at 31 through 34. It says, behold, this is not on the screen, just just listen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And we Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, most all of us are probably Gentiles, are grafted into or brought into that family of Israel now by faith in Jesus He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant he made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this new covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Not just say, here's the law and follow it. Instead, I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, here it is, here it is. This is, this is like the best part, I think, of Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. So when he says, 
drink of this blood of the covenant. In other words, receive forgiveness of sin and realize that Jesus has taken the place for you and God will never, ever remember your sin anymore. Well, that's, that's an absolute amazing covenant. That's an amazing covenant that we're invited into. The forgiveness of sins, as he told us in Matthew one twenty one. And this is where it gets just astounding. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, the forgiveness of sins. And then notice this. Jesus is saying, this is the last day that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with my disciples until one other day. This particular moment, this is the last time that we will share wine together. But there will be another day when we will share wine. So the Lord's Supper is... um, as we, as we take of it, every moment we come to it, there is, there's two ways we're to look. We're always to look back at the cross, his body broken and his blood shed, but we always, always have, it always has a little eschatological meaning or looking forward meaning. We're always to look forward too to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Anytime you take the Lord's Supper, you look back and you look forward. You look back to what he's, the cross and what he's done and you look forward to this promised meal with Jesus when we will drink of the cup Again with Jesus. It says it right here. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. That day is referring to the great messianic banquet or the marriage supper of the Lamb told to us in Revelation 19.9. So the Lord's Supper is always meant for us to look both ways to the cross and the other way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says in 19.9, the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That's Revelation 19.9. So anytime we take the Lord's Supper, we're always to be thinking both ways. Just as the Passover looked forward to the deliverance and settlement into the promised land. That's what the whole Passover is about. That they were brought out of slavery and settled in the promised land. That was at the Passover. Now... The Lord's Supper, and that was the shadow, the substance now, the Lord's Supper for us looks forward. Just like they look forward to the promised land, the Lord's Supper for us looks forward. We're not delivered from actual slavery, but we're delivered from slavery to sin. And we also are looking forward to our promised land or the new heavens and the new earth with our Lord, King Jesus. So we're always looking forward to his coming kingdom. And he says... I'm going to drink it with you. And so let's just, I know that we're all Baptists maybe here, or at least we grew up Baptist and we think, is Jesus saying, I mean, Fudd, that kind of concerns me a little bit. Is Jesus saying he's going to drink alcohol with us one day in the future? I mean, is that really what Jesus is saying? Okay. (laughs) Yes, that's what he's saying. Jesus is going to drink wine with us one day in the new heavens and the earth. But that's not the big deal. Okay, I know that we like to make that kind of the mountain, but it's really just the molehill. It's no big deal. Um, Calvin notes the obviously way more important special thing of the day. He promises to them a glory which they will share with himself. Meaning, his disciples and us, as he's looking at his disciples there, it's most immediate application is them, but for us, of course, will be deprived of the presence of Jesus until they are in heaven. The greatest thing about heaven, where we drink of the fruit of the vine with Jesus, is not that we drink wine with Jesus. 
Instead, it's that we're in the very presence of Jesus. Let me read a psalm to you. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. As we read Psalm 73, in light of Matthew 26, it brings Psalm 73 into a brand new kind of light. Whom, I have in he- whom do I have in heaven you? Heaven's not, the greatest thing about heaven is not forgiveness of sin. The greatest thing about heaven is not seeing your relatives again. The greatest thing about heaven is not sinning ever again. The greatest thing about heaven is the presence of Jesus that we will all enjoy finally with our Savior face to face again. Who do I have? No one but you. And there's nothing I desire on earth besides you. Can we, can we just stop and really start putting that into practice? There's nothing on earth that I want besides Jesus. There are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things vying for me to make it an idol. But what I want is that my life would say, I don't want anything else besides Jesus, even on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We're sinners, and we will have a flesh and heart that fail and will pursue after lesser things. But God is my portion forever. Lord, keep me from having a weak heart and weak flesh and make God my portion forever. The question of the hour then is this. Will you trust Jesus today? Will Jesus be your portion and treasure today? When you hear this gospel, that Jesus gave his body for you, that he shed his blood for you, that everyone, every person ever that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that? Everyone. I'm just going to read one closing story of how this is true, that everyone. This is is such a beautiful story. This is a pastor's son that was excommunicated from his church because of his wayward sinful life. And you would say, well, that seems like that's a pretty big deal. It is a big deal. And I say everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, no matter where you are in your life, will be saved. He's writing, and he's talking about his salvation experience that happened at age 22. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded, not following Jesus acting like, because he grew up in the church. At first, I pretended that my reason for not following God was high-minded and philosophical, that I just didn't think that God existed, and I could play the part of of the, the skeptical atheist and really seem intellectual. But really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers and who raised their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. They excommunicated him from the church because of this. That's, I think, just an amazing example of what a pastor would do. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now, but God was in control. On Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email I had a message from a girl I'd met weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the Circle K, bought a 40-ounce can of Miller High Life, 
at 8 o'clock in the morning for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember where it was. So I started at the beginning of the book. And that's where we say it's the beginning of the end, right? You're going to read the book of Romans. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. Beautiful. If you're freaking about about the beer and cigarettes, you're missing the whole thing. God regenerated his heart through the reading of the Romans. Anyone, anyone, if they call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. The best way I know to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it, I just love this, made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist that call. His body broken and blood shed. When we understand the gospel, that he would freely give and distribute that. Now we're looking back at that first question. Is he just my rabbi or my Lord? When I understand what he's done and that he has freely distributed, saying, come and drink. It's all for you. Forgiveness, life eternal. How can we, how can I, how can you, how can we ever say, Rabbi, and not say instead, Lord. We're going into a time of Lord's Supper. I don't feel like I have to say very much here. We know that in 1 Corinthians 11, it says to not take the supper in an unworthy manner. Most times we think, well, I'm a wretched sinner. That means don't take. It's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means based on the fact that you know who you are. Because of the gospel, we recognize who we are. And so in saying I can't take it, we say, the only thing I can do is take it. The only hope I have is Jesus. I have to take it to remind myself of what he's done. I have to have it and preach the gospel to myself that he gave his body and that he gave his blood. It's the only right response that I can have. Sure, I'm a sinner, but Christ is bigger than that. He's my Lord. So during this song, as we sing, whenever you're ready, the Lord's Supper supper at Remedy is open to every Christian. If you're not a believer, I just ask that you watch and listen and observe. If you are a Christian, whenever you're ready, as we sing the song, you can come to the front or you can go to the back, get the cracker, the unleavened bread, and the juice, and come back. And after the song's over, I'll lead us in a time of Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray. And then as you are led by the Spirit, come forward and go to the back. You might want to sit, think, pray, reflect during the song, and however long you need, then come forward. Let's pray. Jesus, you're our Lord. You're not just our rabbi. You're our Lord. I pray for all my friends here as we partake of this beautiful supper the substance as we take the bread we take the cup the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the good news that Jesus was the propitiation the wrath absorbing sacrifice from God for us 
that the truth and beauty of that would find us awestruck. That you have broken your body and given it and distributed it freely would only cause us to become deeper worshipers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.